Good morning, boys and girls. Today, we'll be learning all about... Doll Crayon. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. It's your boy, the loyal dullard, the dull one himself. Going it solo for another edition of The Doll Crayons. That's right, you are in the crayon box. You are in with your friend, Gabriel Zuger, and he's going to take you on a journey, a journey through the last quadrant of the snack bracket. Now, if I may uh, break the fourth wall a little bit uh, for you for a moment here, uh, loyal dullards out there, loyal fans. Um, the snack bracket is... Not my favorite segment of the Dull Crayons. Um, it is a fucking hellish nightmare to schedule um, as far as guests, as far as timing. And I know that last year's snack bracket was long as shit. If I recall, we started uh, the competition in March and we only announced a winner in fucking August, which I mean, if you're the NBA playoffs and you go from March to July 4th, I know that's really not saying much, but you know, I prefer more of an NFL kind of season, you know, something that's over before you even knew it began. So my goal here on this snack bracket is to really cap things early, right? And that's that's where putting the power to you, uh, our fans, really comes into play here. Uh, because as soon as I announce uh, the, the winner of today's quadrant, you will have your final four. And it will be up to you to make the decision. You will have until the end of... You will have until May 31st to make your decision. Once again, all votes are counted. All votes can be uh, filed at dullcrans at gmail.com. Uh, we will also have a poll up on the Patreon page. That's patreon.com uh, slash dullcrans. Uh, so you will have multiple uh, points of egress here um, and ingress. Uh, and we, we want you to vote. We want to hear what you have to say. Uh, but it's up to you. You have until this episode airs, uh, from when this episode airs until May 31st to cast your vote for the winner of this year's Snack Bracket. We will make much hoopla. We're going to parade this fucker, you know, down Wall Street uh, as soon as it's announced. So big ups to whoever wins. Big ups to you voters. Uh, so stay with us. Uh, now, as for today's show, I'm going to run you through the Snack Bracket. Now, the one thing about going it solo is... You know, I can't really fuck it up, really, can I? I mean, I invented the bracket. I am the bracket. Uh, so I'm going to give you the notes. I'm going to give you uh, the bouquets. I'm going to give you uh, everything that you need to know, all the complexities about these flavor profiles up ahead. Um, and, you know, I don't have to be explaining it on the air to anybody. We all know how the game works. Um, so I'm going to give you our four contestants today. I'm going to walk you through a little bit of uh, data in the schooling industry, and then I'm going to hit you with the winner, and we all get to go home early. So, I mean, who doesn't love that? So this quadrant is actually a, a surprise quadrant. I'm giving myself a little uh, birthday present here um, because everybody else got to pick their own quadrant, right? Uh, MLP and FOP got to pick the Doritos quadrant. Dazzling Diana wanted the Oreo quadrant. 
uh, Tony from the Bronx, knowing about, you know, the power of the Triscuit, the power of the Cracker, he declared that he would be, you know, the Cracker King. Um, and this was a little, a little something I threw together at, at the last minute, you know, when I was uh, doing some planning here. And I've got to say, uh, I'm, I'm glad I saved the best for last because folks are going to be really excited. This is literally the fudge quadrant. These are, uh, for the most part, uh, 75% of them are regular, ordinary snacks that have all been featured on the podcast before, only this time they are doused in motherfucking fudge. That's right. We have fudge-covered Oreos, fudge-covered Nutter Butter, fudge-covered Ritz, limited edition. You know I love that shit. And then we have the sweet and salty bugles chocolate peanut butter flavor um so these are and as it says on the bugles bag america's number one finger hat i mean who knew that bugles even still fucking existed out there i know i didn't um but finding these i was pleasantly surprised bugles you keep doing it you bastards um so once again we're gonna go through those i will give you my top two moving on to the final round and then we're going to talk about data all of that and more right after this. Man, brothers, they wildin' on account of me ripping the truth. Flipping positions, mission written, man, I'm living proof. I took the mittens off, I'm slugging open fist, shadow by slap boxes. Ain't shit. The double standards are driving me, I'm mechanical now. The catalog gets gradually bigger annually. I'm a door breaker down a law, disobey a crowd around a renault for simply saying needs taming. I'm entertaining, yes, attacking like Dick Cheney's chest. But lacking nuts, so macadamia fuckers claim the best. It's not gonna last long, homie, I'm that strong. You gonna fuck up leaving. Past gone, I'm here to fuck perception. Right in this 2020 our prescription, leaving the blinded. You should have brought protection. Watch your next I'm sneaking up behind you like the tax and checks all up. Your next, y'all wanna let me in? Then you wanna change me up? And we are back. I hope you enjoyed that musical excerpt. In the break, I tasted all four snacks, and I hope that you'll you'll help me through this one because I am, you know, I mentioned that I was not going to have any hiccups here, but I, I I might I might be making some mistakes. So, having tasted the fudge covered Ritz, oh my God! I mean, Ritz are already so buttery, so flaky, perfect salty cracker, and yet when you cover them with fudge, it just it it adds you know a whole new thing to it. You know, do you lose a little bit of your versatility as far as toppings go? Sure, but it's a pretty delicious cracker. Uh, that being said, whoever wants a fucking chocolate cracker, I don't know. So obviously, fudge-covered Ritz are not making it to the next round. Let's not pretend that that was ever going to happen. But my real situation coming up is that I, I feel like we have sort of a three-way tie going uh, between the fudge-covered Oreo, which is easily the best Oreo that I have had in this competition. And that's saying a lot because I already ate four other Oreos with Dazzling Diana in the Oreo quadrant. So uh, Nabisco, I mean, you're, you're, you're playing head games with us here. You keep coming out with all these different varieties of Oreos and yet at the end of the day, your top seller should be this one. It should be an Oreo covered in chocolate. Uh, 
End of story. Full stop. Um, again, same thing with the Nabisco Nutter Butter, uh, with the fudge-covered Nutter Butter. It's gold, right? Because a Nutter Butter is a, an excellent cookie to start with. It's got a little bit more height than an Oreo, so it's got a little less crunch almost, um, but it's got that peanut butter taste throughout both the cookie and the filling, so it's, it's Nutter Butter through and through, which you gotta love, and the combination of peanut butter and chocolate is always a hit, which finally brings us to the Bugles, the chocolate and peanut butter Bugles, which I gotta say are just incredible. They are the best dusted thing I've ever eaten in my entire life. They are almost wet with dust. It is like clumpy and amazing in all the best ways. They are salty. They are sweet. They are just incredibly decadent. And then they've got this bugle crunch. It's fantastic. So the issue I'm having right now is I think we're making a change and it's going to happen so it's never happened before, but then again, this is only the second annual snack bracket. But we've got a bracket buster here. Um, you know, I'm getting a report right now that it turns out uh, Carrot Cake Oreo was actually caught doping. That's right. Um, he, she, it uh, just had uh, weird estrogen and testosterone levels that lead us to believe they were doing a little bit of the clean and then the clear and then the clean and then going clear little Scientology whatever the case they are out of it we we had to expunge them from the record I mean better that we do this now than we have a Reggie Bush situation later where we just have to take away their Heisman and their you know NCAA trophy and I mean really when was the last time anybody said Reggie Bush's fucking name in the first place so we just we just feel like it's it's best that we forget the nightmare that ever was the Oreo quadrant this year. I mean, we have the sweet and tangy, the carrot cake Oreo, which never should have made it out in the first place. Uh, we're replacing them. They've been replaced. They've been superseded by the fudge-covered Oreo. So our three contenders right now are the fudge-covered Oreo, the Diablo Doritos, and, of course— the chia-woven jalapeno rosemary triscuits. And going on into the next round here are going to be the nutter butter, fudge-covered nutter butters against the sweet and salty bugles chocolate peanut butter edition. So you will find out who the fourth contestant in our final four is that you can vote for at the end of this episode. But right now we're going to take a little trip back into the education realm. And this is a story I picked up um, a bit ago. It's coming from January 11th, 2019 from the Harvard Business Review. And it's titled, Data was supposed to fix the U.S. education system. Here's why it hasn't. And this is by Simon Rodberg. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading from this. I'm going to do a little bit of uh, editorializing and, and, and giving you the key facts that were uh, either hitting on here or missing on here, um, but this from Rodberg. For too long, the American education system failed too many kids, including far too many poor kids and kids of color, without enough public notice or accountability. To combat this, leaders of all political persuasions championed the use of testing to measure progress and drive better results. 
Measurement has become so common that in school districts from coast to coast, you can now find calendars marked with data days when teachers are expected to spend time not on teaching, but on analyzing data like end of the year and mid-year exams, interim assessments, science and social studies, and teacher-created and computer-adaptive test surveys, attendance, and behavior notes. It's been this way for more than 30 years, and it's time to try a different approach. The big numbers are not necessary. But the, more import, but the more they proliferate, the less value they add. Data-based answers lead to further data-based questions, testing, and analysis. And the psychology of leaders and policymakers means that the hunt for data gets in the way of actual learning. The drive for data responded to a real problem in education. But bad thinking about testing and data use has made the data curse worse than the disease. Now, pausing right there before we go on, um, I think the hypothesis to Rodberg's uh, article here is obviously true and has been something we've mentioned on the podcast before, that treating education like a business or like a system is never going to work. And that's what the the drive for data um, in the 90s and the early 2000s really led to um and and rodberg's gonna talk about a bunch of political actions that were taken um that that made this thing happen but i want to go back a little bit further even than rodberg will here and say that the the issue of data does not just come from policymakers like george w bush or barack obama but it comes from business too um and it comes from people like bill and melinda gates um, and other billionaires who thought that they would fix a problem like education by putting $700 billion into it. Um, sorry, not $700 billion. Why did I say that? $700 million into it. Um, but these people are fucking stupid. I mean, as has already been pointed out on this show before, um, Bill Gates has also thought that he would dump $200 million into perfecting toilets um, and solving an issue of, you know, dysentery and disease in other parts of the world. And he also hasn't made any grand breakthroughs in that. He's actually just made shittier porta potties, uh, if you'll pardon the pun there. Um, so uh, part of the issue was that we had people who had no business being in education um, making educational policy decisions and forcing the issue here. So when Rodberg's about to bring up No Child Left Behind and race to the top, don't even think George H.W. Bush. Bush was a puppet. I mean, we all know that. Bush was a puppet to Cheney, so why wouldn't he be a puppet to billionaires like Bill Gates? Bush was just a puppet. He didn't know what the fuck he was doing, but Bush and the representatives of that time thought, oh, well, here's a billionaire who wants to tell us you know, that they're going to fix education. Why shouldn't we listen to them? Here we go. In 2001, Congress adopted No Child Left Behind, key legislation that mandated annual testing and led to database decisions making for schools. That was the same year I started teaching. When I joined a charter school in Washington, D.C., the school had recently expanded. It had a fabulously charismatic CEO with an inspiring inspiring life story. All its students completed internships and all the seniors wrote theses about public policy. The best of these made for great stories to be told to donors and the Charter Oversight Board. But the data, standardized tests required by the new law, 
revealed that our students overall struggled to read and do math anywhere near grade level. The graduation rate stunk. The new data meant that we could no longer ignore most students' realities. Our teachers are failing. As Michelle Ree, former chancellor of the District of uh, Columbia Public Schools, said, quote, when we took control of this school district in 2007, 8% of the 8th graders were operating on grade level in mathematics. 8%. And if you would have looked at the performance evaluations of the adults in the system at the same time, you would have seen that 95% of them were being rated as doing a good job. How can you possibly have a system where the vast majority of adults are running around thinking, I'm doing an excellent job, when what we're producing for kids is 8% success? So I'm going to stop there. Now, Ree has a great point, obviously. She's saying 8% is not successful. It means you're failing 92% of the kids because they're not at grade level. She's also saying that at the same time, the staff, the teachers, were being rated as effective, but effective at what? That's sort of unclear. And the thing that she's not saying is that this had been a system that was already in place for seven years. So there's a question mark there about, well, Re, the system's already bad. So what part of it are we saying is fucking up? Because there's sort of a few too many spinning plates to even dissect what the issue is here. We'll continue with Ree. One of Michelle Ree's core values for the public school system was, quote, our decisions at all levels must be guided by robust data. Parenthetically, Rod, Rod, Rod Berg or whatever this fucker's name is, worked for Re in 2009-2010 and was a total believer. That's parenthetical. This gospel th uh, spread throughout K-12 to education. Under Barack Obama, the federal race to the top program demanded measurement of teacher impact as part of evaluations. Teachers got used to setting SMART goals for their lessons. M for measurable, you know, uh, SMART goals, whatever. Um and putting up data walls in their classrooms. A guide for principals mandated goal setting with the proviso that, quote, each target must be quantifiable. You and your school will be most successful if you can justify a goal and target with hard data. Another popular book for principals is called simply Driven by Data. By the time I became a principal of a middle and high school, the data bug had infiltrated our methodology so much that we effectively shut down all non-testing related activities for six days in the spring for state testing. Early in the year, we had another six other days, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we've slid from a reasonable, necessary, straightforward question, are the students learning, to the current state of education leadership, where school leaders and policymakers expect too much of data overtest students' learning to the detriment of learning itself and get lost in their abundance of numbers. So uh, back to Re. So Re, uh, as you may or may not know, she did take charge of um, the school district in uh, the District of Columbia, which, as you also may or may not know, is a complete shithole when it comes to education and always has been. Mostly because the District of Columbia is a shithole in a lot of public policy ways because they don't have proper representation, which is a whole other thing. Um, but Ree took charge, and one of Ree's core values has always been school choice and charters. 
And all of this could be seen in the movie uh, Waiting for Superman, which, if you haven't seen, is worth seeing. It does not hold up because the myth of it is, um, you know, shaken to its core at this point. Um, And the last thing you should know about Rhee before we move on um, is this from her Wikipedia page. She has also been a visible figure in the national media, appearing on television shows, radio programs, and the documentary film Waiting for Superman. In May 2011, Rhee spoke in favor of school choice alongside the Wisconsin Republican governor, Scott Walker, at an event hosted by the American Federation for Children, a pro-school choice education organization founded and funded by Betsy DeVos. So once again, if you or anybody you know are taking advice from Michelle Rhee or reading anything by Michelle Rhee, um, it, it, it might as well be Goebbels. Um, because this is not the person to be listening to on Education Matters. Anybody who can stand next to the slimy, villainous Scott Walker, anybody who can be at an event hosted by Betsy DeVos and isn't carrying around a carry-sized tankard of pig's blood is not a sane person. So, um, moving on. Rodberg talks a bit here in uh, Leadership Through Data about the way that leadership became addicted to data. Uh, If you're uh, familiar at all with the show, the hit HBO series, The Wire, this would be the equivalent of them doing their uh, ComStats meetings, where everything is data-driven and we should be focused on what's working or what, what the data tells us and not anything else, even though... As we also know from The Wire or from real life, that all of these things are social and relational. They are not simply numbers. And when you treat people like numbers, they tend to not play ball the way that you want them to. So he talks about a bunch of mottos that get spoken about at data conferences like, in God we trust, all others bring data, or we believe in data. Or we believe our actions should be informed by the best data available. All of which is just a way of saying, uh, it's not our fault, look at the numbers. They act as though this is accountability when in fact it's the it's the least part of accountability. It's it's just it's business and it's and it's business as usual. But moving down, uh, we're getting towards the end here. Uh, Nationwide data suggests that the growth of data-driven schooling hasn't worked even by its own lights. Harvard professor Daniel Koretz says, quote, Best estimate is that the test-based accountability may have produced modest gains in elementary school mathematics, but no appreciable gains in either reading or high school mathematics, even though reading and mathematics have been its primary focus. Uh, So now uh, the question of what we do next from Rod Burke. Data, many times, is incredibly useful. I disagree. That's editorializing. In this article, I've used data on student performance, on teacher prowess, from student surveys on their experience. And I'll be the first to admit how much I relied on this as a principle. Are the students learning is still the most important question, and it can't be answered without looking at the results. Yes, it can. And often, it can't be answered by looking at the results, because learning is not something that you can measure on a spreadsheet. I editorialize again. But looking ever closer and ever more often, 
won't make the students learn more. And trying to turn teachers into data analysts instead of helping them to be better teachers is a recipe for disaster. So what do we do instead? Uh, so now he's going to go on and say that usually the last step in all of the data analysis is to give suggestions and that often the suggestions um, are instructional strategies that teachers should use, yada, 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 but they are literally the last steps. And he suggests making those things the first steps. I would say scrap the whole thing and focus on building stronger bonds with your students um, is the first step. And uh, telling your principal to eat a shit sandwich is probably the second step. And project-based learning is the third step. That's just me spitballing here. I want to go back for a minute, just because I missed it, uh, to our discussion about the difference between 9% success rate or an 82% fail rate and then a 95% success rate or, a, you know, uh, whatever that means as far as the teachers go. And, and uh, to beg you the question, what does 8% success mean at grade level? It means that your grade level is wrong. It does not mean that there is something wrong with the learning. And especially if the teachers are actually being surveyed as being effective teachers or doing a competent job, it means that it's not the kids that are the problem. It's not the teachers that are the problem. It's the people that are handing us these books and these tests that tell us what the grade level is. They're the ones who are wrong. Can I give you a hint at who the people are who tell us what the levels are? There are people like Pearson. There are people like Heinemann. There are people like Fontis and Pinnell. They are big publishing companies. Big publishing companies who make their money doing research that is completely tainted and research only for the benefit of, again, selling their product, their product being testing and test booklets, and then curriculums that match up to the test booklets. And then you can run all of these things back up to the Common Core as well because, you know, the Common Core has its own issues as far as academic standards across grade levels. But really, the whole thing comes down to the publishing industry making their money off of the pain and suffering of students and teachers everywhere. Because, listen, principals love this shit. This guy loved this shit, Rodberg. They love looking at numbers. They think looking at numbers is super fun because they think they're exerting some kind of control if they can look at these numbers and tweak these numbers. They, they think that they're, they're also seeing growth if they can make these things happen. You know why? Because they're not the ones actually in the room making the sausage. These are people who've actually lost control of the situation and are looking desperately for any way to get it back. And this is a way that feels like a way to get it back. But once again, folks, I got to tell you that teaching is not a science. It's not a science. And as somebody with a master's of science in education, I will be the first to tell you it is not a science. The same way that uh, John Kerry is not a scientist because he has a Bachelor of Sciences, I am not a scientist. This fucking thing is not a science, and it's not about data and looking at numbers and creating spreadsheets on your kids and having checklists. 
it just ain't about that. And it's never going to work that way. And whether it's high stakes testing, low stakes testing, whether it's uh, an 8% uh, grade uh, on grade average or a, a 33 or a 56, you're never going to get it this way, folks. You're never going to get it if you're listening to people like Michelle Ree and Betsy DeVos and Scott Walker and Bill and Melinda Gates. So let's get back to Bill and Melinda Gates. So Bill and Melinda, they, they sunk, like we said, $700 million into this stuff. Zuckerberg put his own money into this stuff. Plenty, plenty, plenty of the wealthiest people on the planet. We don't always think of them as the smartest, but, you know, people listen when they talk sunk money into these things. And do you know what the RAND report found when it came out a decade after they put all their money into charters and into making schools better? The RAND report found they didn't do jack shit. In fact, the independent RAND report found they should have listened to the educators instead of making these business-type decisions about schools. So there you have it, folks. Even the people that Bill and Melinda hired to assess them, you know, hopefully favorably, could not come out and make their bosses happy because the numbers just weren't there. They looked at the data, too, and the data said, actually, your shit fucking stinks. It's not roses. It's feces, and it's disgusting. This is a terrible terrible situation you've put us in and you've actually set us back probably two decades as far as public education goes so thank you very much golf claps to you now get the fuck back in your own lane because you monkeys don't know what the fuck you're doing thanks again and see you on the road gates now if that topic wasn't fun enough for you <laughs> i've got the results of the snack bracket here. And folks, this was tight. This was really tight. But I've got to say, bravo Nabisco. You've you've just done done it again. You've had multiple finalists here, um, including the fudge-covered Oreo, the fudge-covered Nutter Butter, um, and, and even to have the Ritz fudge uh, in it. I mean, you had, you, 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 you covered the, the, the table. Um, you ran the table with it, but going up against fudge-covered Oreo and jalapeno and rosemary Triscuit and Diablo Doritos is none other than Dark Horse Underdog of the Century, the Chocolate and Peanut Butter Bugles. That's right. Hit that shofar. Hit your bugles. Hit your trumpets. Play taps. It is time for bugles to hit the big stage and get a big win so please, please make sure that you go email us at dullcrans at gmail.com to vote for your choice of the best snack of the 2018-2019 season. Your vote matters. This is not no electoral college. Uh, the, the judges here, the co-hosts, do not get a vote. I do not get a vote. Um, this is on you. And you get to make an impact here. You get to decide what the best snack of 2018, 2019 was. And we want to hear it. So email us. Go to patreon.com slash dullcrans where you can also vote there on our poll. Um, and 
uh, and definitely become a member. We're going to have uh, new episodes coming to the Patreon that will be bah, 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 behind a paywall. That's right, our first ever paywall. We, you know, the wall in Westeros is down, but the wall on Patreon is up and active. And we're going to bring you two new episodes uh, that are for members only, uh, featuring uh, a whiskey bracket. Uh, by Tony from the Bronx and also um, some uh, special characters from uh, Dazzling Diana and those will only be available to members uh, so please go and sign up uh, we want to see those membership numbers rise we, we thank you for listening we thank you for being with us and sticking with us we are now uh, we're, we're just about uh, touching touching three calendar years so it's been a blast doing this for you as your loyal dullard. I hope that you've enjoyed it. A uh, live show coming at you in a few months. More news on that in the future. And again, go out and vote your heart out. Uh, do it Chicago style. Vote early and vote often. And we will see you in the box next time. The Dull Crayons is a free and independent podcast supported by listeners like you. To show us support and keep us free, stop by our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dullcrayons and write into us at dullcrayons at gmail.com. Along with our hosts for this episode, we'd like to thank Jesse Katz and Gwen Gallitzer for the theme music and Colin Matthews for the logo. <laughs>